Hello, you are listening to an episode of Trade Talks, a podcast about the economics of trade policy. I'm Samaya Keynes, the US Economics and Trade Editor for The Economist. And I'm Chad Bown, a senior fellow with the Peterson Institute for International Economics. This week, we are going to talk about globalization. We have three guests, each giving their perspective. First, Patrick Fowles, who is the business affairs editor at The Economist. Second, Robert Johnson of the University of Notre Dame. And finally, Susan Lund of the McKinsey Global Institute. We'll start with Patrick, and he's going to tell us about the cover briefing he wrote for The Economist this week, which, of course, everyone should read. Well, Patrick, hello. You are reaching us from Davos, where... I'm hearing that the word globalization uh, is, well, it's on the cover of The Economist this week. Is it on everyone's lips? People are unable to sleep because they're so excited about the word globalization. So, yeah, it's it's the buzz of the town here. What do you mean by it? What is it? Well, we were trying to come up with a phrase that kind of captured what's going on in, in world commerce. And, and really, it's that on a number of measures, the process of global integration seems to have either stagnated or, or on some measures it's stopped. So it's not in precipitous decline, but uh, having had a, a, a really 20 years, uh, a 20 year long boom, things suddenly seem to, to have lost steam completely. And the trade war is important because it's probably going to be compounding some of the effects of that slowdown that had begun really before Donald Trump got into office. So what particular measures of this international commerce and integration do you have in mind? Well, we came up with a dozen, and I won't go through all of them in excruciating detail, but essentially a block of them looks at trade, supply chains, another chunk looks at capital flows, and then we looked at some slightly broader measures of things like you know, international flights or the amount of internet traffic crossing borders, and the number of parcels crossing borders to try and get a kind of composite picture. Were they all doing exactly the same thing? No, so I think, you know, basically the trade-related ones, so the volume of trade, the intensity of supply chains, all of those have sort of stagnated and dropped a little bit over the last decade. And then you've got the investment ones, things like bank loans, portfolio flows, foreign direct investment. All of those have fallen a lot. And then you have the, the last category of those slightly broader measures where, you know, things like international flights seem to be going on regardless and, and, and growing really quickly. So in those three buckets, you've got one that's stagnating, one that's falling a lot and one that's rising. Focusing on the globalization bucket, the, the slowing bucket, why do you think that that's happening? Well, I think there's a, there's a mixture of sort of underlying changes which don't have anything to do with populism or protectionism. So, you know, uh, to, to go through a couple of those, you know, the economy broadly is shifting more towards services. And as you know, they tend to be traded less. China and some other emerging economies seem to, to, to be able to make a greater share of their own production chain, so make components rather than import them as they get more sophisticated. And there's also an interesting one with multinational companies where their profitability is basically just dreadful. You know, it's really fallen a lot. And I think there was this big over-optimistic expansion into foreign markets. And, and now people are, are being a bit more disciplined at cutting costs and cutting back. And those are kind of the, some of the, the deeper underlying trends that, that were in place before populism and tariffs and so on really came onto the scene. So it seems like trade in goods has been slowing down. Is there a sense that trade in services might, might pick up and help pick up some of that slack? 
Well, we looked and, and you know, it is true that trade in services have, has grown a bit faster than, than trade in, in physical goods. But if you look at it as a share of GDP over the last decade, it hasn't really moved very much. It's been pretty steady about six or seven percent. And I think that that, you know, is that that's important. I know there, there's optimism around digital trade that might might be something that takes off and is gives globalization a new leg. But if you look at services overall, the picture is of of you know, very modest growth rather than some some great pickup. And people have talked about a boom in services trade right for 20 years. And I think at least in terms of the figures, it doesn't really seem to be taking off yet. Going back to goods then, can we talk a bit about tariffs and how important they are, what companies are thinking about them, how they're responding? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I, I, this morning, actually, I, I met with a couple of, of, of very big global manufacturing companies. And, and you know, the, the picture is, is, is definitely that the, the immediate sort of profit impact of the tariffs is just not that big. And we, you know, th- that reflects the, the fact many of the companies already run themselves in kind of regional silos. So the amount of stuff they're actually shifting around is a bit less than you might think. And we actually, as part of this exercise, went through the earnings calls of about 80 very big American companies who, who were the ones who talked about this to their investors. And, you know, the overall impact on profitability is peanuts. It's about 3%, which is, is not that big. So I don't think the immediate quantifiable impact is that important. I think the thing which is more significant is is just the whole uncertainty and sense that the rules over tech, antitrust, investment are, are fragmenting. I think companies are thinking very hard about how they allocate capital and, and you know, whether or not they really want to be putting large chunks of incremental money into places where the, the rules of the game are uncertain. So, so weirdly, I think that almost the, the trade and profit impact don't look that significant yet. But perhaps it's the investment channel where you begin to see the, the impact percolate through. So, Patrick, tell us how rules are fragmenting around the world then. Yeah, so if you if you could take it in in several different categories, but you know you've got tariffs which are unstable and changing. You have in Europe and the U.S. new investment screening laws in place. The uh, in the U.S. it was passed, I think, in July or August. It got got through Europe in November, came up with its new screening system. You have in tech, which after all is roughly a fifth of the business world, a complete splintering and fragmentation of the rules. And then another kind of humdrum one would be antitrust, where China seems to you know, be pursuing a completely different policy from Europe, which is acting differently from the US. So if you look at, for, for most companies, that, that sort of set of rules around global commerce, it's suddenly become quite uncertain in several different ways. And none, none of those things may be catastrophic yet for most companies. But I definitely think when you're looking at, you know, allocating billions of dollars cumulatively over time, the uncertainty actually has quite a big impact and, you know, in essence, raises the cost of capital people apply to different geographies and sectors. Other than businesses' bottom lines, what are the other reasons why we should be worried about this kind of fragmentation? Well, that, that's, that's a, you know, really the most important question. And, and I'd say there are t- t- a couple of bits to it. You know, one is the, is the extent to which it's bad for efficiency, 
right? So globalization was, in essence, an argument about what was the most efficient way to to organize the world. And because some of the trends that are happening are voluntary, right? Companies are going, actually, this isn't the best way to organize my business. One has to assume that uh, some of what's happening is good for efficiency. You know, they're, they're, they're altering how they allocate their resources. But some of what's happening is due to protectionism and uncertainty. And that chunk of things, one would assume tax is efficiency. So I think overall, you've got to assume it's a less efficient system. The other bit of the question is what impact it has distributionally, right? So how is that, you know, who, who wins, who loses? And my sense is that it's probably a world in which for poor people, the chances of catching up are, are a bit lower. So it's harder for some countries to catch up. And yet, oddly, you don't get the, the mirror image benefit of blue collar workers doing better, you know, in a more protected, closed world perhaps they might do better. And that's obviously what some politicians hope. But I don't get the impression that there's any talk of a renaissance in labor, labor intensive manufacturing in the US, for example. So I think you could have a weird situation where it's actually kind of worse for the world's poor, while not being noticeably better for the kind of traditional blue collar worker in the West. And just to give an example of how that might work, perhaps you have a manufacturer who looks around at the world and says, OK, we should you know, reshore some of our production, make it more regional, if you like. But that's not going to lead to a huge number of blue collar jobs in America because they're going to invest in very efficient robots rather than lots of workers. Yeah, that's exactly right. And, and you know, in fact, the, those two companies I met earlier today, I mentioned, you know, both, both are specialists in industrial robots you know that's the big growth area in their business and it's always interesting you know you can read about automation in lots of reports in the economist in in the peterson institute work and and you know it's it's a uh, an abstract subject and it's always interesting to meet the companies that are actually doing it and it's very tangible and very real for them and a big growth area for for, for their their companies that was patrick fowles of the economist Next up is Rob Johnson at the University of Notre Dame. He's going to give us his geekier take on things. Rob is one of the guys who came up with ways of measuring globalization and the supply chains. We started off by asking him how he did it. The thing that I have focused on primarily is thinking about measuring the value-added content of international trade and comparing that to conventionally measured gross international trade data. What do you mean by value-added? How does that help? So underlying trade in goods. There is implicit trade in content. The key idea is that in conventional trade statistics, what we do is record the value of goods as they cross borders. But in global value chains, inputs cross borders multiple times before they're embodied in a final good. And that generates double counting in trade statistics that inflates the value of international trade relative to the underlying exchange of content on which that trade is based. So the idea is, and you know, take the classic iPhone example that's assembled in China. China imports semiconductors, say, from Taiwan, and that's counted in China's import statistics. It then takes those semiconductors, adds them to other parts and components, a little bit of Chinese value added in terms of assembly, exports the final iPhone to the United States, and that semiconductor from Taiwan is counted again. So there's a lot of double counting when you have these global supply chains where these inputs cross borders multiple times. How would all this double counting show up in, in the trade statistics? 
double counting in the international trade statistics is going to show up as a decline in the value-added content of trade. The reason is because the value-added content of trade is is inversely related to the number of times goods cross borders in the production process. And so globalized value chains with many border crossings lead to declines in the value-added content of trade. So the more times things cross borders, the more the inflation of the value of trade without any value necessarily being added. And that value being added shrinks as a share of the total. Yes, imagine an extreme example. If no value was ever added and stuff was just being shipped between countries, the value of the trade could be very large and the ratio of value added to trade would essentially be zero. And so in your research, Rob, what have you found has been happening to this ratio over time? Over time, there have been large declines in the ratio of trade measured in value added terms to gross trade. And that's signifying the rise of of global production chains. The amount of value-added trade has fallen as a share of overall trade, signifying that that more of trade is just stuff crossing borders and and signifying the expansion of these global supply chains. Based on this this measure of global supply chains and and value-added as a share of overall trade, has there been a recent change in, in the spread of globalization, slobalization, some might say? There does appear to be a slowdown in the expansion of of global value chains. They were previously expanding quite rapidly, and that seems to have slowed down in recent years, particularly after the Great Recession in 2008-2009. And is there a sense for why that might have happened? If what explains the initial rise of global value chains was the decline in trade costs, the the obvious answer to that question would be there has been a slowdown in the decline uh, of trade costs in recent years. The fact of the matter is there's a variety of things that happened during the 1990s that can happen once and aren't going to happen again. The decline in trade costs in the 1990s triggered a transition from an old world in which global value chains played a relatively small role in international trade to a new world where they occupy a much greater role. That led to a rapid growth of international trade during that period that has now slowed down as we've approached the new normal and supply chains have stabilized at this new more globalized production process level. So, Rob, how confident can we actually be that any one thing is causing this globalization? Honestly, it's very hard to put the pieces together. One reason is we lack very good data, that real-time data that would be necessary to track global value chain activity. I'm hopeful that'll improve in the future, but we're not there yet. The other reason is because everything causes everything else, and the only way to do the exercise of trying to understand what's causing what is to look at structural frameworks that are contingent on a variety of different types of assumptions. Or as we say on trade talks, it's very complicated. It's complicated. Thanks, Rob. Thank you. Next up is Susan Lund. Susan and the McKinsey Global Institute just put out a massive report called Globalization in Transition, the Future of Trade and Value Chains. Susan, hello. Hello. Thanks for having me great to have you. You've just put out a report about globalization, recent trends. What's the headline? Globalization is really in the midst of some fundamental long-term structural changes that have really gone unnoticed. There's a lot of attention these days to trade wars and tariffs, but when we look at what's happening in industry value chains, what we see is five really important shifts that are changing the calculus of where companies decide to do business. Let's go from one to five. 
Well, first we see that for goods trade, trade intensity is declining. That just means that a smaller share of the goods that are produced are exported and more, a larger share is being consumed in the country that they were produced. Second big trend, though, is that services trade continues to grow. And we discuss how it's undermeasured and underappreciated. And if you looked at it more holistically, you'd see that actually services trade is really important and it's where the future is. Third, we see that low wages are no longer the main factor in deciding where companies choose to put production. Today, only 18% of trade is from a low-wage country to a high-wage country. The corollary to that, the fourth trend, is that value chains in all industries are becoming much more knowledge intensive. And by that, we mean that R&D and innovation is playing a larger role, and the need for highly skilled workers is also going up. And then finally, we see that although we think about trade as container ships crisscrossing oceans, a larger share of trade today is actually happening within regions rather than between them. This is a relatively recent shift, just since 2013, and you see it especially in Asia and in the EU28. But increasingly, trade is happening within regional blocks. Okay, five is a lot of things. Let's unpack some of those. So one that struck me that you mentioned was low wages, and then my mind immediately jumped to China. So China has to be a big part of the story there. What's going on? China is a big part of most of these trends because China is, depending on how you measure it, the world's largest or second largest economy. And they're the world's largest exporter. So a couple things are happening in China. First is Chinese consumers have gotten wealthier over the decades and they're consuming more. McKinsey projects that by 2025, two-thirds of the world's manufactured goods are going to be sold in developing countries, and China's sort of the foremost among them. So more of what Chinese factories are putting out is now being sold to Chinese consumers rather than being exported abroad. Now, that actually really affects the trade intensity, and this is why we think this is not a short-term slowdown in trade, but this is a structural shift because you see the same thing to a lesser degree in other developing countries like India. What about this wages story? In the past, I thought that China attracted lots of production, lots of companies deciding to, to put their exporting base in China because it was so cheap to, to make stuff there. Is that less the case now? It is less the case now, in part because wages in China have risen and in part because of automation technologies. So there are some types of manufacturing, like the creation of clothes and toys and shoes that are still pretty labor intensive, but that's only a small segment of manufacturing. Instead, what we see is the rise of higher tech, more advanced manufacturing, aerospace, computers and electronics, automobiles. For all these things, Production is highly automated, and so labor costs are just not a driving factor. And even in the labor-intensive industries like clothes and apparel, you're seeing automation start to be applied there too. So when labor becomes less important, then you're not necessarily going to put production in the lowest wage country. But in the longer-run history of you know the movements of industries like textiles and apparel that have moved from one low-wage country to another and, and spurred export-led growth, part of the story seems like it's not going to move next to the next low-wage country. It's not going to move to Africa and help Africa develop. So what do you think is actually going to happen then? Well, that's the million-dollar question that 
the world needs to answer because that window of opportunity is closing. Now, it's not closed yet. You see that labor-intensive exports from Bangladesh and Vietnam and India have grown multiple times over the last 10 years. So there's still some opportunity, but the window is closing and it's an open question as to what is the next development path going to look like if labor-intensive manufacturing isn't going to be the huge job creator that it was in the past. Could data-intensive services exports be the rung on the ladder that those developing countries jump onto? That could be. So certainly countries like India and Costa Rica and the Philippines have done really well in service exports, what we call back office processing, things like data entry and accounting and call centers. Now, that's also under threat from automation, though. So they're going to need to increasingly be able to provide the higher value customer service type calls and functions that won't be automated. I think there's another opportunity for the developing countries that are located near the big consumer markets in the U.S. and Europe. So countries like Mexico or for Europe, Central and Eastern Europe or Morocco and Turkey all stand to benefit from being very close to where the consumers are. So if labor costs don't matter, increasingly what we are seeing in virtually all types of companies that are supplying consumers with goods is speed to market is becoming much more important. So Zara and H&M and fast fashion is sort of the clearest example of. Zara can get concept from design to a store in New York in 25 days, right? You can't produce in Asia and have something sitting on a ship for a month if you want to have that kind of speed to market. And we're seeing that across different industries. So I think there will be opportunities for developing countries, but it will be very country specific as opposed to one sort of tried and true path that any country can follow. Moving back to the rich world, do we know anything about the industries that are already experiencing these these trends or that are most susceptible to these trends? And I'm thinking particularly about manufacturing that's growing very quickly in the US or in Western Europe? Well, we do. We can see, for instance, in the automobile industry, the last seven, eight years have been great in the US in terms of car sales, and you've seen growth there. You're also starting to see new types of production. So Adidas created what it's calling a speed factory, first in Germany, to produce athletic shoes. So instead of hand sewing together you know, many different parts in Asia, by low-wage workers, it's completely automated. And they have a plant in Germany, and they just built one in Atlanta, Georgia, in the United States. Now, there aren't a lot of workers because the shoes are being made by robots. But the workers that there are are robotics engineers and technicians and people with mechatronics degrees that can run the computers that run the robots. There's also lots of designers. So the jobs that are being created tend to be much more high skill and highly paid, which is good news overall. But again, it doesn't address the unemployed workers who lost out in the last wave of globalization. If production is becoming more regional, even more domestic, do you think there are any reasons to worry about that beyond the, you know, the development implications that we just spoke about? Well, I don't think so. So as an economist, I think about why do we 
care about globalization? Well, we liked it because it raised efficiency and productivity and it increased competition because suddenly companies had to compete against you know, competitors from around the world. Well, those things are still true. Even if a company chooses to produce in the United States, it is absolutely exposed to competition from companies all around the world. And if anything, we're seeing information is being diffused much faster. So when a company has a good new idea and an innovation, the amount of time it's the sole provider of that new idea is very short. You can look at various technologies, how long they took to get to 50 million users. And radio took 38 years before there were 50 or 50 million users. And of course, then that goes down and down. And and we get to, you know, Angry Birds is less than a year. And Drake, just on his last album, Scorpion, hit 50 million users in eight hours. So trade talks were about were about 49 million users. So we're, mm-hmm. we're, we're getting close. <laughs> we're nearly there. We're nearly yeah. there. Good. So the point is, What globalization brought was a flow of information and ideas, and that's still happening, even though trade in goods is happening more within regions and countries. Can I push back a bit on that, though? Because, you know, one of the trends we've seen is is this uh, regionalization or this fragmentation of the way in which these big regulators are deciding the way that data flows should happen. So you have the EU and its data protection laws, and that's very different to the Chinese approach. Doesn't that sort of threaten this idea that we're in this nirvana of information just flowing freely everywhere? Yes, that's a great point. And that worries me too. And that worries me a lot more than value chains moving to the EU, Asia, and US regionally. If we interrupt that flow of data, either through data localization requirements or um, preventing market access from global players to a set of consumers, the Great Firewall of China is a good example. Like These things could, in my mind, seriously disrupt globalization. One other thing that I know McKinsey does is it talks to a lot of companies. It talks to CEOs. And so when you did that in this report, what are they telling you? Well, we did a survey of global business executives in the fall. And what we found, not surprisingly, is that uncertainty over trade policy is a top concern for about a third of them. 75% of the companies in our survey said they are changing their globalization strategies. Now, for half of them that said they're going to shift their geographic footprint to either increase more or less in particular countries, and a quarter of them said they're investing more in domestic supply chains to get around trade policy altogether. So there is no doubt that companies are both responding to the long-term structural shifts and find policy uncertainty very concerning and are reacting accordingly. Okay, Susan, last question. Look into your crystal ball. Tell us what's next for globalization. Well, sadly, my crystal ball is a little bit cloudy today. But I think technology is clearly going to shape what happens to global trade flows and globalization. And there, we can see two different kinds of effects. On one hand, you have new technologies like blockchain or automated document processing that will continue to reduce transaction costs, and that will make it easier to trade across countries. But then on the other hand, you have technologies that might reduce trade. So we already talked about automation technologies mean that labor costs aren't important, so you can now produce in a high-wage country. 
that could actually reduce goods trade. There are surprising effects that technology could have. So think about electric vehicles. It turns out that the number of moving parts in the drivetrain of an electric vehicle is only about 10 to 15 percent as in an internal combustion engine. Well, today there's $790 billion of trade every year in global auto parts. What if the world starts to buy a lot of electric vehicles? That could eliminate a lot of auto parts trade. So there are all sorts of, I think, interesting effects from advances in transportation, in energy, that will have unexpected impacts on trade flows. And maybe I'll just conclude by saying it took us 69 episodes before blockchain was mentioned on Trade Talks. (laughs) Good point. (laughs) Susan, thank you very much. Thank you. Before we finish, we should hear from one more person. Hi. Chad, have you recently published a paper on this? In fact, I have. So I was doing some research on the question of what might actually be causing this structural shift away from global supply chain expansion. And so, of course, what I did is I looked at the role of trade policy. So the question is whether trade policy changed in a way after this global financial crisis that might be causing the slowdown of global supply chains. So what I was doing was looking at the period before 2017, so before President Trump and all of his tariffs came along. What did you find? Basically, I found two things. So first, just to be clear, there's really no evidence of any major change in the normal headline tariffs that countries impose, just no change. But second, there is some evidence of a change in the sorts of special tariffs that countries impose. And now, I'm not talking about the special tariffs that President Trump has imposed, but before President Trump, countries would use lots of special tariffs like anti-dumping or countervailing duties. These are the tariffs that you use to target low-priced imports or subsidized imports, even in normal times. Well, prior to President Trump, there was a slight change in what countries around the world were doing. They were shifting toward imposing more of these kinds of special tariffs on intermediate inputs. So the sorts of parts and components that are traded across borders that lead to global supply chains. Obviously, if you see lots more tariffs in those particular sectors, that might slow down those supply chains. Now, this isn't massive. This isn't something that's a major cause of the slowdown of global trade or the slowdown of the expansion of global supply chains, but it's definitely something to watch. And you put these things together with all of President Trump's special tariffs, and there really could be something serious going on here. On Trade Talks, we'll be watching. That is all for this week. A huge thank you to Patrick Fowles of The Economist, Robert Johnson of the University of Notre Dame, and Susan Lund of the McKinsey Global Institute. We'll make sure to tweet out links to all of their written work on this stuff. And I suspect we will not forget to tweet out links to Chad's research either. As always, a big thank you to Colin Warren, who takes care of our audio. And do follow us on Twitter. I'm at Chad Bowne. I'm at Samaya Keynes, and we're on at trade underscore underscore talks. That's not one but two underscores, at trade underscore underscore talks. Because when it comes to globalization slowdowns, two plugs for slowbalization are better than one. Slowbalization is going to catch on, right? Yeah. I'm, well, if it gets slower, yeah, probably. It'll have happened on trade talks. <laughs> <laughs>